0: Today on Podcasting Nubia, we're discussing the Black Queen that went to war against Rome and won. Simply incredible. Welcome to Podcasting Nubia. I'm your host, Andre Samuels, and I'm the author of the book, Nubia, the Rise and Fall of African Empires. This is a very special episode today because I get to talk about one of my favorite rulers from African antiquity. Uh, In the last episode, we talked about Taharqa, the greatest Nubian pharaoh, and he's usually everyone's favorite for those that are familiar with the topic. There have actually been a lot of rumors that Will Smith has shopped around the idea of filming a movie about his life, and it's understandable. The story would be incredibly exciting. You have this charismatic figure who goes to war for the first time at the age of 16, so Jaden Smith can play young Taharqa. He was allies with Israel, early Palestine, the Arabs and the Phoenicians, so you'd have incredibly beautiful backdrops to film in. You'd have this incredible enemy in the Assyrian Empire. So it would make an incredible movie. But I think an even better story would be the epic of Queen Amani Rhaenis. Now before we get into her story, we have to paint a backdrop because when we study African history, it's easy to let the programming that we've all experienced color our expectations so we have to reimagine African civilization now after the breakup of Egypt and Kush that we covered in the in the first episode when Taharqa was defeated by the Assyrians he retires to Napata that was the capital city of the Nubian Empire and he was buried there like most Nubian pharaohs and that lasts for about 300 years It's hard to wrap your mind around empires that last for more than a thousand years when our own country is only about 240 years old. But after 300 years, the Nubians move their capital from Napata to a city called Meroe, And Napata continues to function as a sort of spiritual location. Now we learn about why the capital is moved from the Greek historian Diodorus Siculus. Now, his account hasn't always been accepted by historians, uh, but the longer historians have had to contemplate what he wrote, uh, the more likely it is that most of what he said was accurate. The Nubians apparently moved their capital during the reign of King Ergamenes, that's around 295 to 275 BC. Now, according to Diodorus, the high priests of Amun at Napata were accustomed to determining how long a Nubian king could reign. The king served a sort of spiritual function in the empire. So the fertility of the kingdom, the food, the, the ability to produce uh goods for the people was dependent on the king so when the spiritual leaders the priests decided that a king was no longer fit to rule they could simply send him a letter and say it's time for you to go and the king would be expected to end his own life now king Ergomenes didn't like this idea and so he sent a contingent to Napata and he slaughtered all of the priests He just killed them all. Diodorus writes about this, and he says: Ergamenes, who had received instruction in Greek philosophy, was the first to disdain this command. With the determination worthy of a king, he came with an armed force to the forbidden place where the golden temple of the Ethiopians was situated, and slaughtered all the priests, abolished this tradition, and instituted practices. At his own discretion. So, Ergomenes, who apparently had some education in Greek philosophy, handled this in a very Greek way. And so, after that, most burials occur at the new capital in Meroe. Now, when you imagine Meroe, you need to abandon anything that you've ever been taught about African civilization. Miraway was a jewel in the ancient world. It was a metropolis in the middle of the Sudan. And the Sudan was very different back then. The Sudan was filled with lush African hardwood trees. There were rivers that flowed and crisscrossed around the area around Miraway, which is why Miraway became known as the island of Miraway, because from a distance, that's what it looked like. It looked like an island. One of the reasons the Nubians moved into the area was because of those hardwood trees. The Nubians were at the forefront of what was, in their day, a scientific revolution. The smelting of iron was a science that few civilizations knew, and the Nubians were literally the best in the ancient world at it their iron products were coveted as being the best in the ancient world, and from Miraway they were no longer reliant on the Nile to transport their products. So Miraway became incredibly wealthy. They became so wealthy actually that the Persian king Kamsis attempted to conquer the city. Uh, but his army, for the most part, died trying to get there. And this is a pattern that you'll you'll see a lot of uh, in African civilization. If you continue to listen to this podcast, you'll hear more about this. Africans were fond of placing their cities in places that were out of the way, that weren't easy to, to get to, because the landscape then serves as, a, as another layer of defense against attackers. We should also talk about the character of Nubian civilization. Many African civilizations are at their core collectivist. And Nubia was no different. The state collected taxes and it collected products, um, and then it redistributed that to the population. So sharing the wealth was official state policy. Now this character also means that researchers have found huge libraries and learning centers, and some of them have speculated that those universities were open to the public. Now that's speculative, but based on the way that the economy of Meroe worked, that's not far from being possible. The Nubians had multiple systems of writing, they had libraries, and they were progressive in other aspects as well. One feature of the Nubian civilization is that women and men were considered to be equal, and this was certainly a rarity in the ancient world. In Kushite culture, kings and queens were equal. When the Nubians conquered Egypt, for instance, women were actually in control of the administration of the kingdom. Queens could command armies, they waged wars, they fought on the battlefield. Queens like Amani Sheketo and Amani Tore depicted themselves wearing typically male regalia. So the queens of Kush were also called the Candice or the Kandaki, which meant Queen Regent. And typically, they are depicted as being larger women, more robust, plump. And so that's how Queen Amani Rainis is described. Strabo writes about her as being brave, strong, and blind in one eye. Now, from the best sources, we know that the Romans had been plotting to conquer Nubia for some time. Nubia was a bottleneck for trade. Products that would come from other places in Africa would have to pass through their territory to the Egyptian territory, which was now controlled by Rome. So, emperors going back to Nero had been plotting to conquer the area. Apparently, Queen Amani Renus learned of these plans and she drove her army straight into the heart of Roman-controlled Egypt. Additionally, most reports are that there was conflict in Egypt. Many in the population weren't happy under Roman rule, and that was probably due mostly to taxes. So, once again, we see the Nubian pharaohs, the Nubian rulers, positioning themselves as sort of freedom fighters, supporting the the downtrodden. So, when the conflict escalated, the queen led her army. She decapitated the Roman forces at Syene, that's in Aswan, Elephantine, and Philae. A lot of artistic reliefs have Queen Amani Rainis wielding two swords at the same time, riding in her chariot. And the army that she commanded was possibly as large as about 30,000 Nubian warriors. So she went straight for Thebes, the capital city. She sacked it, and she decapitated the Roman garrison. And at some point, she decides to start decapitating the statues of Augustus. And she takes those back to Nubian territory, and she has the heads buried underneath the entrances to her temples. In Nubian culture, the idea of trampling your enemy is a profound act of disrespect. So she wanted the Nubians to trample the image of Rome, the emperor of Rome, for all eternity. So Queen Amanirenus enjoys success for quite a bit of time and then the Roman prefect Gaius Petronius returns from Arabia. The Romans were apparently plotting to conquer Arabia and then conquer Nubia. So Petronius was finished with his duties in Arabia and he builds an army of around 10,000 Roman soldiers to start fighting back against the Queen. The sources are a bit confused about this. He meets with some success and then at some point he decides to destroy Napata, destroy the Nubian spiritual center. Unfortunately for Gaius, this seems to animate the Nubians as opposed to discourage them, and so the Queen builds an even bigger army. The two armies go back and forth, There are some victories for the Romans, actually considerable victories for the Romans, and some wins for the Queen. At the end of the war, the Romans withdraw to the north. They leave behind the garrison at Kassir Ibrim, which once represented the southern border of the Roman Empire. Now, in Nubian records, the Nubians claim military victory. The two sides exchange envoys. There are some words. And essentially after that they seem to come to terms with peace the Romans exchange technology and goods Augustus is actually seen as worshipping Nubian deities on Nubian buildings they send architects down to to Nubia the two seem to get along for quite some time and the the economy of both prosper as a result of the new relationship so who won is, is an issue that historians don't really like to wrestle with because it depends on who you ask. The Nubians say they won. The Romans, of course, say they won. And then you have some historians who refer to Nubia as a client state after that. I think the most reasonable explanation is that the two sides went to war and both recognized how painful war would eventually be for both of them. According to some sources, the queen may have lost her son in the conflict. That's Prince Akinidad. And the Romans certainly learned a lesson from a Nubian queen riding straight into their capital and sacking it. Ultimately, the two found that peace would be much more comfortable and mutually beneficial for them. So if I were making a movie... It's the story of Queen Amani Reynas that I would tell. In the black community, we have a, a tradition of women being very strong and taking on leadership roles in our community. And I think, it's, I think it's telling that that tradition wasn't born out of the slavery experience. It wasn't born out of our experiences in North America. It's something that seems to be in our DNA. Strong women leadership respected as equal by the men it seems to be something that is common in many of the cultures and if you continue to listen to this podcast you'll hear about that as a feature of black African civilizations now if you liked that story you can read more about African civilizations in my book Nubia the Rise and Fall of African Empires which is available on Amazon.com and you can tune into this podcast every week we'll discuss a different aspect of Black African civilization and why it's important that we continue to spread an awareness of the accomplishments of Black African kingdoms.